0: Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, Today, um, I've got some sad news uh, to kick things off, unfortunately, and then I've got um, um, uh, an episode where I want to talk about lessons learned from the past year of gaming. We're only just now into December, but I'm getting close to the time. Not close to it. What am I talking about? I'm a perennial planner. Um, I uh, am at the point where I'm planning for what I'm going to be doing with 2020 and sort of looking at games. Uh, And just this past week or so, I've been fairly um, reflective of the games that I have been playing in the last little while. And thinking about what what I enjoyed. Forgive me if there's noise in the background. I'm uh, defrosting my vehicle because it's freezing here. Um, uh, Some of the lessons I learned, from, especially from some of the the, um, uh, one-shots that I ran over the last little while, and uh, think about how that might apply to uh, my plans for the next year. So um, that's what I want to start with. Uh, So let's get into the episode. All right, so let's get the sad news out of the way first. Unfortunately, um, those of you who are regular listeners may be aware that... uh, um, my, I have a very uh, beloved dog named Emmy Lou, uh, who you've heard probably barking in the background of uh, episodes before, and certainly you've heard her ba- barking in the background of, uh, <laughs> of uh, s- uh, sessions that we broadcast on the YouTube channel. But unfortunately, we had to say goodbye this week, and uh, uh, it, it was just uh, she had cancer for a number of uh, years, and we were very fortunate to steal two extra years with her. Uh, but unfortunately, it just um, it be, was too much by the end, and we had to say goodbye. Uh, for anyone who's ever lost a pet, um, it is, uh, yeah, you understand exactly how I've been feeling this week. And uh, uh, for those of you who do have uh, particularly furry friends at home, please give them a great big hug for me and Emmy Lou. Um, it's, yeah, it sucks there. It's a sign of um, just how much joy they bring that uh, their absences felt like such a gaping hole. So, um, and a, a huge, huge thank you to the community who have uh, reached out uh, over the past week as well too uh, I've heard from a number of friends uh, that I only know through bo- podcasting and through uh, broadcasting sessions or streaming sessions on the uh, on the YouTube channel so uh, thank you so much uh, to everybody um, everyone's been very have very lovely things to, to say and have been very helpful in uh, um, just getting us you know through this week and then uh, getting ready to get back on the uh, the old. Mm-hmm. YouTube's bandwagon or, or saddle, I guess, uh, tonight. Not bandwagon, um, but anyway, that's the sad news. Let's get on to the uh, the more productive news. We uh, we're going to be thinking about Emmy Lou uh, from now to eternity, or at least until I shuffle off this mortal coil. So um, please give all your furry friends a great big hug from us. All right. Uh, so with that unfortunate news uh, out of the way, um, the the things I've been thinking about this week. Uh, stem largely from a lot of uh, a lot of games that I've run in the last little while Um, at the time of recording my my current ongoing games uh, include Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea every two weeks um, Starfinder every two weeks an ongoing Pathfinder 2nd Edition campaign that is uh, usually every certainly every Friday and then usually every Friday, Saturday, uh, or rather every, I'm sorry, Friday and uh, Wednesday, uh, we do a two-hour session on Wednesday, and we do a, um, a longer session on, uh, uh, on Friday, uh, and then we've also, uh, I mean, uh, what else do I have as ongoing campaigns, let me think here, oh, I also have a Pathfinder second edition game uh, set in the um, principalities of Galantry uh, that we run on uh, every second uh, Saturday, and what else do we have? Um, and then we have our... Well, I mean, our Wednesdays, our... So rather, our alternate Sunday is our flex game. We don't play any one specific game necessarily. Or we haven't at least committed to one. I've, I've suggested to the guys that I would like to commit to a game to be able to see the kind of, you know, um, emergent... Um, I don't know, like the, the, the fun that comes from emergent play that has been coming from some of our other campaigns, uh, like our... Our Ash campaign right now is 25 or 26 sessions in, and man, it's just it is in it just gets better with every session. You know, like we uh, we the players learn more about the um, uh, about the world. Uh, they are I don't know. It's just it's just a really really great game that is built on the foundation of a series of ongoing campaigns in a perpetual world where the players really have the freedom to do what they want you know, assuming they can survive the threats they encounter therein, I guess. But the, yeah, that's just been a really great play. Uh, Same thing with Starfinder. Uh, Starfinder was originally uh, playing an adventure path, and then I decided to kind of go off the rails and do this very extended flashback uh, to run kind of a space western, but also to indulge in a bunch of other kind of uh, things that I liked about uh, Starfinder. Like we have run, you know, a, a... Quick two-session uh, arc on, in that flashback where it was a horror. They were exploring a, an abandoned, um, or rather a crashed space vessel. Uh, and um, it's, yeah, like that, that, that has been really fun to, to go where kind of the players want to go um, or where I think they would be interested, in, I'm interested in exploring rather than just following a set to Adventure Path. And our Pathfinder 2nd Edition Barrow Maze campaign has been like that as well. Um, in the sense that we've been kind of going where we, you know, uh, I've been taking the campaign kind of where we, you know, uh, or at least... It's not that I'm directing them to go in specific ways. It's that we have... um, I've offered some pretty clear story hooks, and then the players are following uh, some of these. And um, so the the experience that I've had over the last little while that got me thinking um, uh, differently is... A couple of, not wholly unsatisfying, but somewhat unsatisfying uh, tactical encounters in games. You know, there's been two games that I've run the last little while where I was not crazy about the, the tactical... Actually, there's been three games, and I think of it, where I wasn't really crazy about how the tactical encounters played out. Uh, and I, I attribute that to the system um, and, and only because I, you know, they're, every game... Has uh, something it's designed to do, and if you do it for something different from that, it's going to be an unsatisfying outcome. And I want to talk about that a bit, um, because I think that's going to inform a lot of what uh, a lot of what I'm thinking in terms of finding games for fit for ongoing games in uh, 2020. Um, One thing I have said, I mean, the Starfinder game, the Astonishing Swordsman Sorcerers of Hyperborea game. Uh, the uh, Gallantry uh, campaign, all those are going to be for sure ongoing campaigns through to 2020. Um, The Barrel Maze campaign, if you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said for sure would have been ongoing too, but as you kind of see, I'm I'm having some second thoughts about it, and uh, I I don't know. I haven't made any decisions one way or the other. We have another session of it tonight, and uh, I don't know what um, necessarily I'm going to do with that, but I thought that it would be interesting to record an episode to talk about that. And, um, yeah, and that's kind of what I want to talk about is, uh, how the, it's not, not one shots. I mean, I know I'm going to run more one shots and I, I've recorded an episode about that already, but I want to talk about finding the fit for the type of play you want at the table. So that's what I'm going to talk about, uh, uh, in the next section. Actually, what am I talking about? Why do I need to do a new section for this? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, okay, so let's first talk uh, talk about um, play experience. So, one of the things um, that I, I I think I have mentioned on the on the channel before or in the the podcast before is uh, how much of a fourth edition D and D fan I was, and I uh, we had so much fun with uh, with that particular game, um, but we eventually got exhausted of it, and uh, partly that was due to um, the uh, the, the necessity to blow through combat resources and the length of time that combat took to get through. So yeah, for those who aren't familiar with with fourth edition, fourth edition was designed with a lot of um, video game sensibilities in the in the terms of like resource exhaustion and like um, you know set piece fights and uh, having different categories of adversaries where be it you know minions or bosses or things like that and uh it uh it was an enormous amount of fun to play and run it's like for a tactical combat system setting aside the role-playing implications that come from playing a combat system in a role-playing game just as a strict combat game it's tons of fun holy smokes like there's tons of interesting options you get to make there's a very like you know between certain classes there is a feel of sameness. Um, if you l- choose to look just at the rules. And, you know, like I saw that um, Puffin Forest did a really, uh, I think, unfair, critical uh, assessment of 4th edition. I think that's what the YouTube channel's name is. And uh, it's, I mean, like that channel is a very tongue-in-cheek, sort of broad, screeching satire of, of a lot of D&D stuff anyway. So that's sort of his, his shtick. But the criticism of D&D... Of, of that being like well you know if you strip out all the um the flavor then all you've got is just basically the same uh rules and I guess like I don't think that's a fair criticism because like you do that with any game and that's exactly if you choose to look just at the core mechanics and stuff well then yeah that's just it's just rules but I didn't find that to be the case at the table we, we found like uh, classes felt very different and um, combat was lots and lots of fun for the first little bit um, but then we played, uh, at the time, we, we fell into a, a hole of playing Battletech, uh, this 80s uh, tabletop role uh, tabletop uh, miniatures game playing uh, giant robots, uh, fighting each other, people piloting giant robots uh, fighting each other, which is an enormously fun game uh, in small doses. Uh, and that kind of changed our perspective, so we couldn't help but see d d 4th as a tabletop miniature game, to be honest. Um, and... That itself was not necessarily fatal to it, but to our campaign. What was fatal was the fact that, in order to get a satisfying, satisfying play experience in those boss fights, we needed to whittle through some of the players' early, like uh, resources. Like they're they're in the, that game. You had healing surges that you used to to you know heal after damage. You had different varieties of abilities. Uh, you had At wills, you had uh, encounter abilities, so you could use every encounter, and you had dailies that could only be used. Those were your Hail Marys, or at least that's the way they were presented. It's not often the way people played them, but you know, um, whatever. And um, yeah, so that was the the game. And what we found, especially as people gained levels, was that we needed more encounters to weed through some of those, especially those dailies, because a lot of the dailies were quite powerful to weed through those um, or what I ended up having to do is kind of play the monsters sort of what how I felt was unfairly to try and basically like trick the players and like that did not feel good at all. Um, It still didn't stop us from playing for quite a while like we played D&D fourth for about two years or so and uh, and a lot like we do you know uh, Friday night Saturday 16 hour sessions Uh, it, it was crazy I mean we were at the time just fresh out of law school and didn't, uh, have, uh, jobs yet, uh, and didn't have jobs yet and didn't have, you know, significant others or at least significant others who had uh, an enormous amount of free time. So we played a lot of Team D4. Um, but th- that's the thing that burned me out and inevitably it was the fact that um, it, there was combat was taking so long, you know, the like combat took a long, long time, especially for more complicated encounters and we needed more and more of it in order to make the boss fights that we enjoyed so much feel satisfying, feel like really satisfying tactical encounters and not just have the players unload with their biggest guns round after round after round and burn the, you know, the villain down to the ground. And uh, that got me, you know, like the 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 takeaway I had from my experience with D&D 4th is that if you look at the time, it's the sheer amount of time you spend at the table. And if the percentage of your hours that you're spending are overwhelmingly on combat, then that's what that game's about, right? Like, that, that's what that game is. Uh, you, It's fine if they've got other elements to the game, um, you know, where there are, you know, the skill challenges in D&D 4th, I think, were genius. They they were not presented terribly well in the initial uh, DMG, and it was a little better by DMG 2, and then uh, by some of the adventures, they did a better job. Actually, DMG 2, they did do a pretty good job of, of presenting it, and I, I take that back. Um, but um, the, the thing is, is that it, in spite of those good rules, you know, the combat took so long that that's what our games were about. Even though we were playing, like, eight-hour sessions, you know, six hours or seven hours of it would be combat, and there would be a little bit of role-playing afterwards. And it's not because we're necessarily just, you know, um, combat monkeys, you know, like, we just want to be doing that all the time. It's, it's just that... If you do have a violent encounter, it's going to take a lot of time to get through it. It also meant that there was no inconsequential stuff; like you were always buying in for that long length of time. So it it definitely took something out of the immersion uh, because you were you knew you were buying into that, like you were transitioning into that. And and so fast forward to the last um, little while, and uh, I've uh, I've played a lot of um, story games, uh, you know, or story in, story game influenced uh, RPGs in the last little while, uh, like, you know, uh, City Mist and, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, Lord of the, the uh, One Ring role-playing game, and um, uh, and I've been re- looking forward to getting, um, gosh, there's another, oh, a cult, uh, cult Divinity Lost is uh, another one, and so the ones that I've run, they've been a lot of fun, uh, in particular City Mist, hands down was a great experience. City of Mist, if, you ha- if you're not familiar with it, is a, uh, it's a game that owes a, l- it's, a it's a little closer to a tra- traditional, like, uh, role-playing game than, uh, the story game, but it has tons of story elements in it, uh, and it feels like a pathway point between the Powered by the Apocalypse games, uh, or the Forge in the Dark games and the, um, and Fate, uh, like the Dresden Files, uh, system. And, <clears throat> That one was enormously fun. Like I'll, I'll run that one in a heartbeat again. I love that game, uh, Soup to Nuts, uh, Lord of the Rings. As you, if you're listening to these uh, podcasts in order, the One Ring role-playing game was enormously fun. When we weren't in combat, when we were in combat, it was terrible. It was not fun. Uh, I think there are tweaks that could be made to the combat system, but uh, boy, oh boy, like it, um, it feels uh, kind of clunky. It feels very swingy. Uh, it's It was not great. And it reminded me a lot... Uh, well, it not reminded me, but it got me thinking of some of the um, suboptimal experiences I've had with combat like uh, in other games. And um, Fantasy Flight Star Wars, I really don't care for how combat plays in that. I find it, I get, like a lot of aspects of that uh, particular game, I find it very swingy. And it feels very um, Flintstones Boxing, where it's just one hit... One person hits, and the next person hits. One person hits, and the next person hits. There's not really a lot of options for defense, for for like uh, any kind of back and forth between the attacker and the defender. So that's not great. Um, I mean, and like, look, I play DD and I play old school D So those games don't offer that. But what I'm building up to in this episode, or what I want to talk about, is the holistic picture that you get from these games. Because that's what I need to look at. And what I... Sometimes I don't. You know, I get myopically focused on a small bit of a game that I really love and ignore or hand-wave other elements of the game. And uh, so just to forestall that uh, that potential criticism, that that is sort of what I'm... Uh, you know, I, I'm bearing that in mind in, uh, in this criticism. So please don't jump on that as to say, hey, Demi, you like Flintstones boxing games. Because I know. Um, but the... So that's something I wasn't crazy about. And then I ran uh, uh, four sessions, uh, four two-hour sessions of Champions over the last little while, which was uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of fun. Uh, And I also, Champions, if you're not familiar, is the classic superhero role-playing game published by uh, Hero Games, originally published by Hero Games and then published by Iron Crown Enterprises for a while and then back to Hero Games. Uh, so what is this guy doing here, buddy? Are you just living there now? All right, someone's just living at the stop sign. Um, and the um, th- there's a lot of things I loved about that. I loved the character uh, building. I loved the character development. Uh, combat was fun, but boy, did it take a long time. Like I could not have more. We had uh, four two-hour sessions. And then we had, uh, I ran a one-shot, a four-hour one-shot. And I could only fit one substantial combat encounter in each of those. You know, and that and that was really pushing the limits for the two-hour sessions. And it was, uh, uh, like, I had to do a little bit of hand-waving just to, to kind of resolve that uh, session. Uh, and then I had to dedicate one full hour, full two-hour session just to... Uh, uh, to um, role-playing because we're going to do a role-playing uh, I-, I wanted one uh, role-playing session in that uh, four-issue mini-series and don't get me wrong like combat in Hero is enormously fun. Combat in Champions is, is a shit ton of fun. It uh, it feels a lot more you know, uh, coming back to that game for after years and years and years uh, it feels a lot more like playing um, a game that models the cinematic universes that we've got particularly the Marvel one uh, more so than the um, than like comic book stuff because you know there's a round per round breakdown of um, you know, what your characters are doing and the tactical elements and whatnot and I think that's what uh, a lot of people are attracted to about that game and uh, and I mean again look like, I mean I love it I love the back and forth there's a recovery mechanic in the game that I think makes for a really fun and dynamic game there's lots of tactical options each time it's a really 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 good game but when you have combat when you have violence in it um, it takes a long time to get through you cannot there aren't um, I don't know if you have a power disparity like you have regular thugs versus superheroes then combat's probably gonna be pretty quick but it um, yeah it uh, it takes a lot of time to get through and The four-hour one-shot, you know, that I ran, we took about an hour to do sort of set the stage, introduce the characters, and I did a little bit of role-playing. And then basically the rest of the three hours was spent in one massive melee. Now, it was a, you know, it was a really big fight. And uh, I I think that the players enjoyed the fight, at least they told me they did. But uh, it took a long time to get through. And then the outcome was pretty satisfying. Like we, some players were in, in real danger for for a, a quite a bit of the fight, and they really one player almost got uh, one hero got knocked out and was or villain because they were playing super villains. One villain got knocked out almost immediately, and then um, I was out for about well for a good chunk of the first round. But uh, it yeah, I mean, it was really 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 good, but it took a long time, which tells me that uh, combat in uh, in that game is a big chunk of that. If you're, if you're going to have violence in your superhero game, and that's not to say that it needs to be, you know, you need to constantly have that. I think, you know, there's not constant action in superhero movies. It's, you know, great ac- you know action set pieces with tons of story and character-driven moments in between, and that's how I would run a superhero role-playing game. That's how I'd run Hero. Um, but it definitely made me question whether um, I would want to run that uh, as a an ongoing game Uh, and I think what I've the decision I've come to on that is that well the only combat that really took a long time or the ones that took the longest time were the ones where there was a lot of small characters in there like a lot of filler material and I uh, I don't know whether that would necessarily uh, like that wouldn't be the regular case for me I wouldn't constantly be having lots of uh, minions in a in a game um, or at least I would be aware that that's, that 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 you know it would become a very big set piece and could be boring if there wasn't a consequence to uh, you know to that um, that encounter or at least some you know story reason for for that for justifying that many things uh, or having that many things on the table, which would mean it would require that much time. So I guess I'm I'm kind of um, humming and hawing on this one, but with Hero, I it, it definitely made me realize like boy like. I cannot run these short encounters. I cannot have this be just a big encounter where you blow through a bunch of minions, and then we get on to the rest of the session. That was the whole session. The whole session, four hours of setting the stage and then just fighting one fight. We I mean, didn't fight a lot of things, don't get me wrong. But, whew, it took a long time. Um, and, uh, and, and to be honest, I had to pull quite a bit of punches on it because I realized that uh, the... Uh, minions that we were fighting with were... They would have... I think I would have wiped the floor if I... What I basically had was a bunch of, like, minions with guns, and then I had some giant robots, some, like, mecha suits. And I essentially ended up just basically using the mecha suits rather than using the minions, because I... The mecha suits alone were a huge challenge for the characters. They could dish out a shit ton of damage, and they didn't have enough ways to set up defenses, and they were really exposed and whatever, so... Although I mean they did make good use of the cover, the players made good use of the cover, so it's no fault on the part of the players. It's a fault on the part of my adventure design. So, uh, so anyway, th- that was a session, and then I had um, a session of um, Legend of the Five Rings, and it was good. Like the players were really good. The session was was uh, fun. Um, the the dice mechanics, I don't know. Like there's there's a lot of fiddly bits in that game where. You know, there's a lot of dialogue about the role, the roles you're making and stuff like that, like in the, in the same way that there is with games like um, City of uh, Mist. Um, but it does not feel as intuitive. And I think the reason is, now that I think about it, I think the reason might be the, the, the narrative dice mechanic do this thing where you're having to think about a bunch of different ways of justifying the outcome on the dice. This is true of Fantasy Flight Star Wars and Fantasy Flight Legend Five Rings and Fantasy Flight uh, Warhammer Fantasy Third, and it's it's part of like it's something that I, I think is really incredible about the game in the sense that it it makes you think that there are aspects of other games that you do not get. Like in the Fantasy Flight Star Wars, you get um, not only from the outcome of your dice roll a measure of your success and failure you also get a quality of success quality of failure that can be unrelated to whether you succeeded or failed and by that I mean like in um in the outcome of the dice roll you may make you know roll a bunch of successes and those successes may come with um negative consequences and that means like you succeeded in your task but there's some negative externality that happened and that non-binary result for dice rolls is really interesting and it makes you realize that what is missing from other games and because it doesn't have that um, you know that same um, extra little bit in there the trouble is though is that because you have to constantly do that on every single dice roll and even in combat in a tactical combat system that is not story driven it is a round-per-round action economy driven um, combat system it really slows things down and it when you are constantly having to think about okay what are the outcome from this particular thing what's the negative outcome the positive outcome and uh, you know it really loses its um its special and um you know the the special uh, quality that it has you know i heard um recently there was and i can't remember what channel it was if it was a There's a YouTube channel called Renegade Cut that does this, and I think it was Renegade Cut. They did a study of the the Bay Transformers, and one of the things they said is that, you know, the reason you can't remember whatever happened in any one of the Transformers films is because Bay's editing technique, Michael Bay's editing technique, is such that you never get a moment to breathe. It is always breakneck pace, rather than this and more than this and more than this. And because of that, you know, you just your brain is just like I don't know when this, I don't know what I need to pay attention and remember because everything is being presented as, you know, at this panicked uh, pace, and I, um, I wonder if that's part of the the reason why it's that's the Star Wars or these dice mechanics are losing their luster for me. Partly because I think that, I also don't think that they're a great pairing with the way that the mechanics, the, the combat rules are set up. The combat rules are set up as being a specifically tactical oriented thing you get, you get some decisions to make about your action economy how many maneuvers you want to take and, and so forth uh, you've got lots of little fiddly uh, modifiers that can take away black dice which are bad dice and blue dice that you can gain which are good dice um, you can spend fate points to increase your dice pool or whatever else and then it all comes down to what you roll in your dice pool and then the um, the, the you determine you, you sort of like, uh, like in an oracular way you determine what the outcome is from that Uh, from the results that you get in your dice, but it can be very swingy, so it can be unpredictable, it's hard to predict what's going to, what the outcome will be, Um, and yeah, so it just, it doesn't feel, the combat system has never felt particularly satisfying to me, because it's not, it's got a story game dice pool with a tactical, um, you know, combat system, and like in the sense that there's like lots of nitty-gritty rules that you're making specific decisions on that that tells you what you can and cannot do in a very measured and specific way it's not left for you to really interpret it you you know that the damage is you beat the target numbers you um you know you apply the amount of successes you get to your the damage your weapon does and that's how much damage the target takes less they soak uh, and uh yeah i mean uh i guess that i hadn't really thought about it but that's partly, that's probably the reason why I found Star Wars to be unsatisfying um, and why the best sessions I've had with it have been when I've ignored that and just sort of, you know, run the combat system as a narrative, you know, thing on the fly and just interpreting the dice as we go um, It also might be why I'm not crazy about the uh, the experience that we've had with uh, Fantasy Flight's Legend of the Five Rings because we spent a lot of time Going back to the charts and trying to figure out how we're going to justify spending the results of the uh, of the dice rolls, because both Star Wars and Fanta- and uh, Five Rings, they have this thing where you get advantage, or I can't remember what it's called in uh, in um, in fantasy in the uh, Legend of Five Rings. But what it basically is is it's it's currency you can spend from your dice roll to modify the outcome of um, you know uh, uh, of this particular action. And in a narrative sense, it's kind of, it's fun sometimes, right? Like in, in when you're doing skill checks or things like that. Um, In combat, it often feels either fiddly or it feels unnecessary. Like it's just, if if they roll negative consequences, which are called threat in Star Wars, I just apply it as strain almost always because it's just, or a a penalty to the next person's um, dice roll. But it's, it's such a minor penalty that it really doesn't have a meaningful effect. So you're spending time talking about something that doesn't really matter all that much you know, in, in the long in the long scheme. Uh, so, you know, thinking, again, just in terms of the amount of time you're spending at the table uh, on those, like how that time is being spent. You spend a lot of time in Star Wars combat and Fantasy Flight's uh, Legend of the Five Rings combat talking about what you're doing with the outcome of the dice. And it's not, and it doesn't feel the same as talking about what's happened in the fiction like we did with City of Mist. It doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like it is a... um, It doesn't feel like it is having a meaningful connection in terms of the... It's adding to that narrative experience because it's still that crunchy game mechanic thing you're talking about. It's not talking about the, the experience. And I think the advantage that City of Mist has... And games like uh, Blaze in the Dark*, maybe as well, is that they have a much lighter touch in terms of the rules. You know, it goes back to that idea that uh, you know it's the mechanics, and then it's the it's the narrative flourish that give the substance to it. That same criticism that uh, you know the guy from *Puffin Forest* says that oh, it just it just ends up being just the you know just, just a bunch of different healing abilities that are minor abilities, and you can't tell the difference between the different classes. Well, if you're just looking at the mechanics, then yeah, that's probably true. But if you look at it in fiction, then no. It's that's where the difference comes and that's where the role playing comes, you know? And this comes down to what you know what type of game experience you want. But I think that some of those games like Star Wars and whatnot, those are suboptimal experiences because they're not really giving you a tactical crunchy game, nor are they giving you another um, another game, a, a game that is just more story-based. And I think for my personal flavor, I like that lighter touch a lot better. And when I run Star Wars with a lighter touch, I enjoy it a lot more because it moves a lot faster and we're not spending all that time talking about stuff that doesn't really have a, a like, mechanically speaking, does not really have a great deal of, of difference. That doesn't get away from the fact that a Star Wars mechanic is Flintstones Boxing. But I, as I've said, you know, I'm forgiving of Flintstones Boxing. I'm fine with it just being attack hit. You know, there's not a defensive, a meaningful defensive, um, you know, interplay between the target of attacks where they can try and have an effect on them. I I don't care. I don't need that to be a thing. Um, But, you know, if you are, you know, maybe consider why you're not having that in there. So, uh, and I don't know if um, Star Wars does that. It just, just becomes this attrition thing where whoever hits more often takes the next person down. Uh, without any meaningful uh, decisions on the defender's part. So anyway, um, I see that I've been talking for half an hour about this. So maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a pin in that right now because maybe what what I'll do is I will transition to talking about Pathfinder 2nd in the next segment, and um, that'll be later today. And then I will talk about uh, some old school games and, and some of my my conclusions from that and, and a, an episode of uh, Matt Colville's uh, YouTube or an episode, a session, or whatever, a video he posted on his YouTube channel recently about downtime, and it got me thinking about old school play again versus, uh, you know, new school codified things. So, anyway, more shortly. Okay, so where we left things, uh, the last segment was, uh, with respect to some of the, um, not, not to say that they are, I don't want to make this sound like, you know, uh, damning a faint praise, but like suboptimal. And it's not damning the faint praise. It's just that they were suboptimal experiences. They're not bad games uh, by any, uh, you know, by any means. Uh, notwithstanding my comments on the fantasy flight um, dice mechanic, how I, how I find that it is at odds with the way they've chosen to structure their uh, combat system. Um, but the uh, and again, at least as far as my taste, it's, this is all obviously a personal taste thing. Not uh, not a. Objective um, indictment of uh, those systems. If you enjoy the fantasy fight, Star Wars, uh, or the Genesis uh, dice mechanic, and you don't find that there is a uh, a bit of a poor fit between its narrative dice and a more crunchy uh, combat system, then that's great, you know. Uh, but anyway, the um, before launching, and I want to talk about my some recent experience with Pathfinder Two, or at least some recent reflections on uh, Pathfinder Two. Second edition. Uh, but before I d- I did that, I just want to talk about I guess just some general framing to this part of the of the of the podcast or the episode. I guess it, is that I'm not saying that you know um, that any of these games are bad by any means. Um, I think I'll, like these we're in a really fortunate period where that we're blessed with an abundance of riches as far as role playing games go. There's tons of great great games. And um, tons of great ideas in many of these games as well too, uh, ideas that can be repurposed and stolen to apply to other games as a lot of these games do. You know, um, we are coming up this weekend with taking out um, Grim and Perilous Studios uh, Zweihander, uh Grim and Perilous RPG for the first time, and I, I'm excited for this one. I, I, partly because I had a lot of fun playing in um, the session that my buddy Pete over at Garblag Games uh, ran for us. That was a lot of fun, playing a crotchety old nun. Um, and also because I, I like a lot of the ideas they have in the, in the rules. Like it, it really looks like an uh, interesting and, and fun game that's taken a lot of ideas from other RPGs and not uh, wholesale just plunked them in. Uh, what they've done is repurpose the, those ideas for their particular mechanics and they have added in some twists that I think are are really interesting for, for their own game. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of great, um, uh, what do you call it? A lot of great ideas in a lot of these new games. Um, what I'm looking at and what I thought I'd be talking about today is to talk about the kind of holistic fit at the table, how these games come together, how, how all these different elements come together at the table and then Similar to the big picture that emerged from our play of D&D 4th where we came to realize that like, well, this is what this game is all about, you know, and and, uh, that what was not, or at least that particular experience was not what we were looking for. That's not what we were intending to run. It just worked out that way. So uh, what I want to talk about is is finding that holistic picture. So while a lot of these games have a lot of really great uh, elements to them, I want to talk about what that looks like in long-term play. Because that's what I'm planning for over 2020, right? Is uh, for the upcoming new year, I want to have an idea of really what games I think, you know, based on my experiences over the past uh, 11 uh, months, what I think, you know, might be really good and fun things to try in the coming year. And that's why I mentioned some of the ongoing games too in, uh, in the first segment here and, and the, uh, the emergent uh, play. That came from uh, from those games, and it's not only the emergent play that I, I really enjoyed about those particular games. One element that I really love about uh, *Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea* in particular is the, uh, the way that experience points is reward is uh, awarded. Like, not only does it make for a really good way to end a session with giving players stuff, like as at the way we play is at the end of each session, I do, I dole out the XP because it's awesome. Who doesn't like? seeing what their XP is and then if uh, characters hit a new level if they ding then um, they get to level up the characters and have them ready to go for the next session um, but uh, the the other thing is is because of the way because every character class has a different um, XP chart and because each has a different um, uh, or because there's progressively more like it's, it's, a, it's a, for the first few levels at least it's a doubling of XP uh, for what you need to get to the next level. like If you needed 3,000 to get to your second level, it's going to take you 6,000 to get to your next level. Be, because of that, we there's no issue with incorporating new characters. New characters started at level 1, and then they just leveled up uh, naturally. And I think for the first level, I doubled the XP, so they wouldn't have to be um, stuck at that first level for very long, but they got the experience of playing these characters from first level up. And we currently have one character who was a replacement, who, over the span of... Um, the first character got to, I believe, either level 3 or level 4, uh, and then he died, unfortunately, in a, in a pretty epic encounter in the siege of Iron Fang Keep. Um, but the replacement character has already either reached the same level or surpassed the level. So, you know, because of the way that the XP mechanic works in that, I don't have to worry about trying to incorporate new characters in, in any weird way or do any kind of weird math. The game accounts for that, because... The XP that, like, let's say the characters are level 3 going on level 4, so they're going, and let's say we'll use the same example, the the same 6, the one that needed 6,000 to get to level 12 or level uh, 3, um, they now need to get to level 4, they need 12,000, while the 6,000 that they earn in that interim is going to allow that other character to catch up, presuming that uh, they, they earn the same amount of uh, XP. So that's pretty cool, you know, I mean, like, that's a really, it's a really clever element of um, old school play, <laughs> excuse me, my goodness, um, that uh, that just takes care of itself a lot, it allows the, the story to keep on going. Another thing that I love about it is that I don't need to, I do not need to pay attention to balancing combat, and by that I mean you know, PF2, um, Pathfinder, and um, Starfinder, because of the way that the level, the parity level is in those games, I I need to, you know, I can't just throw anything at the table and expect it to work itself out. I need to be very mindful that they are, you know, of the ranges that those encounters need to be in. Now, that's fine for a, um, you know, when you're doing uh, set pieces. It makes each uh, combat uh, interesting in the same way that fourth edition D and D combats were interesting because they were all challenges and they were they were good encounters. The downside is is it doesn't make for the most believable world, you know. Uh, and the specific example I'm thinking of uh, is in our in a recent Pathfinder session, um, the players ended up um, uh, the players ended up facing, uh, or running into a random patrol, a patrol of goblins that, that were on this, uh, this town. And I, I, the way I set it up was just as a, as a combat encounter that was balanced to their level. It was a little, it was a little more uh, challenging of, a not like impossible or anything, but I mean, it was a challenging encounter meant to make that scary, but it made for a really, to be honest, kind of a boring, uh, combat encounter because, um, it was, there wasn't really a lot of terrain features, uh, so it was wide open, which meant that the goblins could lock down, the particular goblins I was using uh, could uh, have this like, you know, um, entrapping goo thing, like alchemical device, effectively like a webnet that could um, trap the guys, and each of them got trapped and then kept getting hammered by the crossbow wielding uh, allies, so... I mean, it did the job of making the encounter feel dangerous, and uh, it made them avoid wandering around on the surface to run into more of those things. But it didn't, you know, these guys have been progressively getting tougher and more, you know, uh, capable. It's weird that uh, the characters were, uh, were not able to handle these guys. You know, like, it it, um, it kind of broke the fiction that suddenly four goblins would be so difficult for these guys to handle who have been taken down, like, you know, undead spirits and fighting wyverns and stuff like that. Like, it just was kind of, I don't know, um, unsatisfactory. And I mean, I, part of that, I, not part of it, I'll, I'll, I'll own that as uh, part of my own uh, design. I should have thought of it in a more creative way than just having a combat encounter. Um, you know, uh, having them pursued by having a bunch of weak goblins that they would have gone down pretty quickly, that they could then, um, you know, uh, that, that may have run off and, and given an alarm, that would have been a much more interesting way to handle that. But, I mean, if I was running it in an old school game, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. I wasn't thinking about balance. I, and th- in our Starfinder game recently, too, there was a, an encounter that I specifically designed as a really challenging one, you know, it's uh, the characters in that campaign are currently level 4, and uh, that particular encounter was with a level, or a CR uh, 6 adversary, and and not only was it a relatively high level adversary, it was also a, it was a difficult encounter, like it was just the way that this thing, it it was difficult to to damage it, Uh, it was, I mean it was a golem, honestly, it was a space golem, it was a quantum golem that was reskinned to be something else. From the new Alien Archive 3. And uh, it just... Um, it, it, the players had a real hard time. I had to sort of walk them around the idea of like, no, 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 like, this is not necessarily something you can beat. You know, you can't just run in and keep hitting it and expect it to, you know, to respond um, and, and you'll, that you'd be able to succeed that way. And I, I don't blame the players by any means uh, for that because, um, I mean, they, they're in the past, they because I, I run things in more, uh, you know, I, th- I think more of an old school flavor in the sense that I make it clear to players in all of my games, encounters will not necessarily be fair. You know, that's why I have uh, retreat rules in all of the games I run. Um, but I, I don't know, I mean, it, for whatever reason, the players just kind of fell into this this uh, habit of thinking like, oh, this is just something we need to keep hitting at, we'll, we'll defeat this thing, when everything about the first couple of rounds of combat were telegraphing what you're doing is not working. You need to rethink this or find some other strategy. And um, I think part of that is because of the focus on, you know, what's quote unquote fair and what's within the level range of your character. It inevitably engenders some degree of thinking of that way that like, this is something we can handle. Kev wouldn't throw something at us that we couldn't handle. So we'll, we'll be able to take this. And again, this is absolutely no slight to any of the players. The players are all terrific players. They all know they're responding, you know, to um, these kind of situations in most uh, every other uh, circumstance. Without me having to, you know, kind of remind them, look, you know, take advantage of your surroundings, you know, uh, see if there's something... you know, uh, this is not necessarily something that is, uh, is something you can beat. Um, but I, I think that with these more. Complicated games, and I've talked about this in the podcast before. But with some of these games where there is such a robust rule system for everything, it's hard not to be thinking of all of those things in terms of that rule system. So, that might, I mean, that may be a really pap thing to, to observe. But what it means in my mind is that it, uh, what it does is if you are thinking of these things always in terms of the rules. And I'm not saying that the players are doing that, nor do I encourage them to do that. I, I constantly kind of harp on people to, like, well, tell us in the fiction what this means. Tell us in the fiction what this means. You can't do it. You know, we can't... I've, I've forbidden people from using the aid another action in um, Starfinder unless they tell me this is, how, in the fiction, how what we're seeing. And, and the players are doing a great job of doing that. Like, they've, they've jumped all over that. But um, I, I think that just it is an incentive structure and it is a mechanical structure that just engenders a certain kind of thinking in the same way that you know people who have played a lot of these other games when they play a game like call of cthulhu or you know other basic fantasy role-playing games that don't have a lot of like powers and stuff like that or top secrets you know there is or old school games if if they uh, are willing to give those a, a go there is a freeing element to that because you're not looking for the solution on your character sheet. You're not looking for the tool that you have there that will resolve this problem. You are trying to interrogate the fiction to try and come up with a way to resolve that. And for me, that's something I enjoy more. Like I, That is absolutely 1,000% the style of play that I enjoy much more so than the, you know, um, than the fussy, you know, moving stuff around kind of... You know, fourth edition, or or to be honest, Pathfinder two uh, kind of play, where it's you know I go back to something that um, uh, Questing Beast had said in a, in a pre in an episode that I, I really enjoyed how uh, OSR combat is war, not sport, and the uh, the Pathfinder two combat system is sport. It is really fun, uh, and it's a really really good game in the same way that I thoroughly enjoyed. The D and D fourth uh, combat system. The D and D fourth combat system is sport. It's not combat. It's sport. But because it's sport, I think that combat in those circumstances can feel trivial. You know, um, in a way that the that it doesn't necessarily feel in other games. You know, um, and when I say and maybe it's not trivial it's that um, it's that it feels like um, no I mean it feels like sport so it feels like a trivial sport as opposed to a life and death circumstance. Now, obviously, I mean, I you know you can present that in that way, and you can have encounters that go that way, and and you add lots of ner- narrative flourish, and that's what really makes for a role playing game at the table is the way that it, the the players and the DM and choose to engage the fiction and present the fiction that is in connection with the the um, what do you call it with the uh, uh, the rules, but you know when there are varying degrees of rules that will. Um, intrude on that stuff. And you think of this like a game like uh, City of Mist. City of Mist really supported and encouraged interrogation of the fiction because we were determining how those rules apply by interrogating the fiction. You know, by getting involved with it and, and um, seeking out more descriptions or describing, you know, coming up with things in the, in you know, uh, like, oh, I'll bet you that there's a, uh, there's got to be some kind of fire extinguisher in this apartment, right? You know, okay, I'm going to use that to do whatever. Um, that's the kind of stuff that adds to the experience It adds to the immersion whereas the other stuff I think takes you out of that it doesn't mean it's not a fun experience it just means it's offering a different experience uh, for the holistic you know overall experience that you're getting by playing that role playing game at the table so what why um, am I bringing this up now uh, you know and I, I think it's beca- partly because of the consistent back-to-back-to-back terrific sessions I have with Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea and with the emergent play and with thinking of of things like the seasonal changes and the seasonal drifts with, um, not drifts, but the seasonal arcs that you get with, um, and by seasons I mean like not TV seasons, I mean like literally spring, summer, fall, you know, in uh, One Ring. Like One Ring deliberately uh, sets up its... Uh, campaign or it's, it's game so that you're playing one season at a time. You have one adventure and then a season passes and time passes and you see that time, you know, go and that's amazing. I love that and I want to see that kind of, you know, that that kind of development. Something I've, I've talked about on the channel before is the Iron Kingdoms role-playing game and, and while I think that the Iron Kingdoms RPG, which is a great, great game in a lot of ways, I don't think it's aged terribly well uh, in terms of the the rules um, but the thing I love about it uh, that is all I always held up as, as one of the very best is the way that your characters advance um, you get XP from each session and then you keep getting new stuff as you level up and it's dictated by this chart so you'll get sometimes some new non-combat skills sometimes you'll get new combat skills sometimes you'll get new feats or abilities or whatnot sometimes you'll get uh, attribute bonuses sometimes you might be able to get a new profession you know um, sometimes you have a new archetype ability. And what all that comes together as, uh, and the way it's structured, is that at early levels, you are constantly getting a stream of new, interesting decisions to make about your character. And because of level caps, or like, you know, hard caps on certain bonuses that you're going to get in it for different tiers, because there's three tiers to the game, uh, what you end up with is a really terrific. Um, game where the uh, experience, I should say, where your characters advance out rather than up in terms of getting more abilities rather than just getting more powerful the abilities. And it is a fantastic, it's a fantastically rewarding experience to go through both as a DM and as players. As a DM, you get to constantly dole out a consistent amount of XP and, and rewards for each session, knowing that your players will feel progress and will feel development and feel that they're actually achieving things as they play through and on the player side it's awesome you know at at those early levels you're just getting caught as you're learning the game if it's your first time to it you're constantly learning new things about the game how it's supposed to work and uh you're getting an opportunity to um yeah to really see this character uh you know develop into something really incredible you know uh uh, because and and because you're, you're making these selections. You can make the selections, you know, the way you some people do when they're making, you know, D&D or Pathfinder characters, designing them from level 1 up to level uh, 20. But that's great. Um, and so that's sort of the gold standard of it. And that's something I want from these games. And I feel like that it's pretty close in these old school games to, uh, where you get that kind of flavor. Where you get this kind of, you know... Um, you progress by doing and you can feel there's a logical connection between what you're doing and what you're getting and if you're not getting more XP because I use the my um, relationship uh, or uh, reputation rules as well too, uh what we end up with is a, a really satisfying um, uh, a really satisfying game where players are getting stuff you know like their characters are learning and, and developing more things um, that may, may not be connected to with just a level gain, but um, they are gaining stuff as they gain levels. So um, that's something I feel is when I, I mean my other games where I'm running with a milestone advancement. That's something I feel it's lacking, and I, and I, my players have told me in the other games they don't feel that that's lacking, but. I feel it's lacking to a certain degree. To, to be honest, in the Starfinder game where we do uh, Milestone Advancement, the players, I, I don't miss it as much there. I'm not worried that the players aren't getting the regular advancements because it's a level-based system, so it's it's tough. Um, for Pathfinder, or second, because of the way the XP advancement goes in that, where it's, um, it's just a flat thousand, you know, it's a thousand, and then you get XP based on the relative difficulty or relative challenge of what you've encountered, um, then, uh, you know, the advancement is a lot faster, you know, and I'm not sure... You do definitely feel that you're getting more, uh, you know, more power and, and whatever, but I don't feel that the level advancement in that has the same cachet and the same... Not cachet. I don't think it has the same... Um, experience as old school leveling Um, not only because you feel or I feel like there is a difference in um, you know there's a difference in because of the relative the way that you set difficulties by you know setting them as relative to your uh, character level Um, there is a dramatically different experience between a character who's third and fourth level one character's third, one character's fourth in, say, D&D, or, like AD&D, or in uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, um, as opposed to a character who's third level and fourth level in uh, Pathfinder 2. Uh, the Characters who are different in Pathfinder 2, there is objective um, numbers that run through all of their abilities, basically, that make one objectively better and substantially better, let alone if there's a more than one level difference between the two you know if there is a um a uh two level uh difference uh between characters in Pathfinder 2 that's a substantial difference uh and the the relative difficulty of the challenges they'll be facing both in terms of the target numbers of uh challenges and in terms of the uh difficulty of monsters that you'll be facing it's a lot it's a much bigger gulf um, you're doing less damage, you're going to hit less often, monsters will crit on you more often, so you're taking hits a lot harder. So it's it's really just a... Um, it, it is not the same thing, whereas you're relatively occupying the same space. And what that does is I think it it like it made, made it so that when in our Barrow Maze campaign, I had to change... I had it for a while where I was running uh, the Pathfinder 2 get characters where some guys were playing level 1 characters and some guys were playing level 3 or 4 characters. And I had to I had to just advance everyone up because it was way too much. It was way too punishing for those low-level characters. It's just not how that game is designed to play. Uh, so it's not a fault of the game that that's not working that way, but it has me questioning whether that's the very best game that I want to run as my ongoing... Is it the best experience I think I could bring for the guys as my, as an ongoing game, you know, on our Wednesday and, and Friday sessions. Uh, or, or is it that there is another game that might be, a give, give us a better holistic experience, you know, and the thing that I, I love seeing characters level, you know, and the differences, the substantial differences, both mechanical and in terms of capabilities, uh, the gap between characters of different levels are much more marked in Pathfinder 2 than they are in old-school games. Now, that's not to say that, like, obviously a first-level character is in, you know, AD&D is going to be dramatically different from a character who is, uh, you say, 18th level or 15th level or even 10th level. You know, that, that's obviously going to be the case. But those mid-range levels, there is a very different gap between uh, those characters, and uh, huh, uh, and then say like characters in Pathfinder or Starfinder, where a f- say fourth level character would be mechanically incapable of being anything other than a chump in a tenth level campaign you know, because they wouldn't be able to achieve anything given the relative levels. Starfinder, that's not quite as true as it is for Pathfinder 2, but Pathfinder 2, it definitely is. And what that means is that the game intrudes more on the fiction at more times and requires consideration to avoid that breaking of the immersion, breaking of the sensibilities, you know, where the fiction runs up against the game or vice versa. And that's really what I'm concerned with. Uh, not, not concerned as in like I'm losing sleep or anything like that, but that's the reason I wanted to record this podcast, or this episode at least, was because you know I I think going forward the the consideration and the things I, I, I need to uh, I need to be thinking about are what is the experience I want? Do I wanna see Because we've been getting, like, our our, our Pathfinder 2nd Barrel Maze campaign is up to the mid-20s in terms of sessions, And it's been fun. It's been really, really fun. Great characters. Got a lot of great storylines that are on on the go right now. Um, But as the characters get higher level, you know, um, even something like right now where we're getting to a point where characters are making dice rolls. And I am having a hard time intuitively knowing whether they're good or bad. Because you're adding such large numbers, like with a level-based game, that like Pathfinder, a a D20-based game, you're adding in these numbers that progressively become larger and larger. So when you're making dice dice rolls, like to hit or to skill checks, uh, the numbers are almost always going to be in the 20s or low 30s, and I can't remember, I don't intuitively know whether that's a good or bad number. Obviously, there are mechanics for figuring that out, and there are really good mechanics for figuring that out in Pathfinder, but it feels weird, you know? It's a weird bit of like, okay, is that a really good number or a really bad number? Um, the a way of dealing with this, you know, or at least the way that fifth edition deals with this is by having that bounded accuracy, where you're only rolling in a certain range of kind of difficulty numbers. But that feels like for me, and this is strictly a personal thing, it is banal, it's boring as shit, and it feels really swingy. Because you're relying so much on a D20, it is all over the place, and low-level characters feel remarkably incompetent at things that they're supposed to be really skilled at. I would prefer the old-school thing of rolling just your attribute checks, you know, uh, or rolling proficiency checks that have a rel that start with a relatively decent and relatively high, you know, likelihood of success, and don't really. Change over the course of play. I'm fine with that because that shit's not going to, you know, if your adventure is going to turn on a successful diplomacy check or not. Yeah, maybe it's not a, you know, maybe you need to think about other ways to make that uh, that adventure interesting, because that's, you know, you would never make something turn on a single sword stroke. So, I, I just, you know, I don't know. I, I, uh, I just don't, um, I just don't really like the bounded accuracy thing. And there are other elements of 5e that I don't need to get into that just where it's not to me, an an ideal uh, version. I I have been okay with uh, the game when I've run it. I don't think it's a bad game by any means. It's just it doesn't suit the sensibilities that I have. If for no other reason, the the, uh, kind of hard reset you get with every long rest, uh, or at least that's the way it feels every time I've run it, uh, I just, I'm not crazy about that. Um, And also the lack of customization. I, I wish there was more of that. Uh, so, for, for character customization, there needs to be more options for me, so... Um, but anyway, so that all of that, you know, that, that's been weighing on me, and uh, I'm not giving up on, on uh, Starfinder, because I, uh, even though there is that bounded accuracy kind of thing, not bounded accuracy, there is that uh, kind of level-based stuff in there, that game is so much fun, and there are so many interesting options you get with your characters... And I absolutely adore the setting. I I love that game. That is one of my favorite things to run. So that that ain't going anywhere. Um, In terms of the um, uh, Ash, Ash is, I love and will, I would love, be happy to, you know, play that through until the natural conclusion of that game, which I hope is never, you know, I hope that we keep on playing and playing and playing because I love that game. It's been so fun to see where, the story and where the adventure has taken us, and that thing. And that's really got me. So, that's sort of what's been swirl, swirling around my, my noggin the last little while. And that's when I came across Matt Colville's recent episode uh, about downtime. And uh, so, let's maybe pause this here. We'll call this part two. And in part three, I will dive into Colville's comments about downtime and uh, his previous comments as well, too, about the night below. Uh, adventure and talk about my um, my recent um, dive back into AD&D Second Edition. Okay, so in a recent episode, and I don't, don't want to. Well, I'll just do broad strokes because um, the episode that um, uh, Matt Colville posted about downtime is is worth definitely worth uh, investigating. One of the things that um, he mentioned in the episode is uh, basically how the non-structured nature, what he was referring to as downtime, as his past experience playing downtime. And I'm assuming from the, the campaigns that he played that it's uh, either second uh, and second edition or third edition d d that he was uh, talking about, because, just by virtue of the, the uh, time period that I know he was, uh, from past episodes he was playing in. Um, and what he talked about is how people would go off on side adventures, you know, like when the campaign was having, it's a pause players would go off and play some stuff and then they'd come back and um, they're in character. They would talk about their solo sessions and stuff like that. And uh, um, I, that is precisely this, the style of campaign that I want to be running, you know, with that, that I strive to with the old school games where, you know, we, um, it, it, You just play, you know, and I'm not worried about balance. I'm not worried about uh, players, Um, you know. uh, I'm not worried about uh, characters out-leveling their their opponents while still being able to give substantial, like, give actual rewards like gold and XP and stuff like that. And that seems to be really only possible in these old-school games where there is, um, you know, there's massive amounts of XP that are required for each uh, each level, but also that where the level differences don't necessarily screw up your um, you know they don't screw up the the game itself they don't you know fuck with the math uh, and make the game a, a suboptimal experience or where it's you know rubbing up against the fiction like like I've mentioned and um, part of what he's he the conclusion he drew in it and uh, I I don't want to misspeak his conclusion here but. It seemed to be that by lack of structure, that's and by not giving it making it a mini game, that's the thing that made them so special and what made them so adaptable. Because it wasn't a matter of like, I'm gonna look at my options for downtime, make a dice roll, and then that will resolve it. It was gaming through stuff, role playing through stuff. You know, stuff beyond your character sheet, beyond your skill bonuses. It was it was actual role-playing, you know. It was actual playing the game. Um, that really hit a chord with the things that I had been thinking about. Sorry, struck a chord, not uh, hit a chord. <laughs> so that really struck a chord with me. That really got me thinking... Okay, well, maybe this is, you know, there are ways in some of the story games that I've run where I really love the mini game. I love the idea of it being structured as a mini game, different things being these kind of like, You know, well, I keep saying mini game, but like a mini, a sub mechanic that resolves a specific type of your of your play. You know, I talked about in uh, the last podcast about how much uh, some of those I really enjoyed in the One Ring combat. Unfortunately, was not a mini game I liked all that much, but there are similar mini games, particularly in the Forge in the Dark games, like uh, Blades in the Dark. Um, The downtime stuff from uh, Ars Magica is pretty cool and looks interesting, and the 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 promise of what the, um, effectively are mini games from Pathfinder two that to me sounded really interesting as well. But the, uh, well, I think there is a difference between it being strict mini game where it's X amount of successes versus Y amount of failures. And when you have something like, you know, um, travel, overland travel rules. So the reason I mentioned the, tr- the, the, Uh, travel rules because I've had two games uh, this year where I have incorporated a effectively like a mini-game kind of, you know, mechanic for for overland travel. One of those is in my Ash game, which I've been running for a long time now. Um, That is the uh, set of rules that I have adapted fairly, um, oh, I mean, very heavily from the old AD&D Wilderness Survival Guide. And the uh, second one is the overland travel rules that I had been using for my Barrow Maze campaign for Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and those are kind of based on those other rules, but it's really more of an abstracted game kind of thing to it, and I find that while I obviously want to add narrative flourish, and I add lots of role-playing to the, you know, uh, to the different encounters, on their face, the mechanics for the um, like the actual dice mechanics behind the a my ash rules for overland travel feel much more organic and much more simulating the experience that that I want of being out in the wilderness and you know traveling and having to scramble to try and find water and, and whatnot um, than the skill challenge thing that I put together for Pathfinder 2 and uh, it's not 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 to be i mean i'm trying to do this in a non-arrogant way here <laughs> but it's not it's not because I, I feel that the game design is is bad uh, behind the the skill challenges and it's not that i've like set them wrong or whatever else it's just that because of the way that it is set up where you are just accumulating successes before failures um without any kind of you know and that's that's the way you set up all these mini challenges for uh for pathfinder uh first and second edition and for DD fourth there needs to be more, you know, um, maybe that's not even the case. Maybe what it needs is it needs to be less. It needs less of an overall structure to it and more of a, I don't know, it, for whatever reason, that overland travel stuff in Ash just feels more inherent to the actual experience and simulating the experience that we're going for and plays up that, you know, persisting world kind of element that we we portray in that campaign, as opposed to the abstracted game thing that we do in the other. And you know what? Maybe, maybe the problem is, is that the same issue I have with the Star Wars combat mechanics, that's the same issue I'm seeing here, is that it is a halfway step towards a story game without fully committing to it. Because that's exactly what it is. It is a structuring of a what is it, a, a traditional R- RPG with some story game elements. But there's not as much of an opportunity or an incentive for players to come up with creative, you know, in fiction, either additions or, um, or discoveries the way that you do in a story game like uh, City of Mist. Maybe that's the issue, right? Um, The one, the first one, the ASH survival rules are, I I just, they're in place and we let them go and and whatever, we see what comes from them. Whereas the travel rules in Pathfinder, that skill challenge thing, there is a desirous outcome and a non-desirous outcome where they're trying to reach a certain number of successes before they hit a number of failures, which is a different structure than the loose you know uh day-to-day stuff that you get in the in the other rules maybe that's why i'm feeling this dissatisfaction with it. it is because like colville says and he just helped me kind of articulate this is that it doesn't need a structure you just let it go you know and that's maybe why going back to ad and d second edition stuff i uh, for those who aren't familiar were or aren't aware on uh, new year's eve uh because i'm a big loser i am going to be running a marathon session of ad and d second edition set in the dark sun setting using ad and d second edition rules for everything we're using pre-gens we're starting off with the adventure that uh, comes with the box set and we're going to go from there and to see where where we go players are going to from around the world are going to drop in drop out as uh and we're gonna keep going from um the start time all the way up till, um, midnight Pacific standard time, um, at least. And then we'll see how far I can go beyond that. But, um, it is going to be awesome. It's going to be a really, really fun session, uh, because I get a chance to do a massive marathon to just see where things go, see how things develop, random encounters, overland travel, hex crawling, classic AD&D stuff. And the thing that I am, I'm really you know, in the course of reading through this stuff, the the rules, like there are obviously rules about it that I don't think have aged well that I want to change. Like, and a lot of it is stuff that has been changed for Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea already. Um, I'm using higher, uh, starting stats, you know, like the, like the way they, uh, create them in, um, uh, in the Dark Sun box set 4D, four D4 plus four for each stat. And then I'm also l- further letting people assign stats, uh, or I'm assigning it for the pre-gens. But I might, uh, you know, that, that doesn't provide a, a, a ridiculous range uh, of stats. So I, I actually would be okay with allowing characters to roll their stats that way for other AD&D campaigns, puts a little more on the heroic bent. Um, I also w- really, I, I, I will be changing the um, the action or the, uh, the, um, the timing for, for rounds. Rounds in AD&D second are one minute long, which is... I'm, I'm not going to have that <laughs> i'm just i'm used to you know six to ten minutes uh six to ten second uh rounds so i'm going to go with what ad with uh, ash does which is 10 uh, second rounds and do a little tweak to the um movement rules but it's going to be otherwise we're running it rules as written group initiative with individual initiative modifiers depending on what weapon you're using what spell you're casting what action you're taking whatever um original psionic handbook um Uh, psychic powers, which should be fun. Um, And then I'm using some of the sensibilities of how I've been interpreting Ash to interpret that. I'm allowing uh, a variant of my Astonishing Fortune rules to make the characters a little more durable, but I'm getting away from something I am not crazy about. I I, I do allow in my Ash games, people to spend an Astonishing Fortune to get an automatic success on uh, saving throws. And, And because of how lethal things can be, that's what I want it to be. But I'm, uh, for this one, uh, instead, it'll be rerolls only. Pl- uh, players can make a. If someone's gonna die, then uh, I will allow them to uh, to um, spend a point of astonishing fortune. But I'm all, two things are changing. One, there's gonna be a pool of astonishing fortune. I'm gonna give it out a hell of a lot less, and um, it cannot automatically get a saving throw. So things like charm um things like sleep things or you don't get a saving throw against sleep but those kinds of things are going to be threats you know it's not just going to be a matter of like well i'll spend this and automatically succeed um it, it will keep the risk around you know and it will hopefully make the decision for when to spend those precious points uh, a little more cautious and that's the for the uh, to support the style of play that i want with uh with that game um and I having made some uh, pre gens for it so far. I'm really liking the way the characters look at third level in terms of like what they're capable of, and um, I like it a lot more than one thing I noticed. So in in my Ash game, I've introduced these rules for um, for cantrips, and um, I like them. I think they, they work well. Players who are low, like low level casters have things to do. But one of the things I, I, that I did is I have noticed is that players have been picking almost always one of the cantrips that provides slight mechanical modifiers to players, basically to support your allies. And they tend to end up favoring that. And the reason I'm 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 wondering whether maybe that was a mistake on my part is not because I mean it did what I intended, which was to give players something specifically to do, something cool they could do that was clear on their sheet. That wasn't just miss with a dart, you know, for spellcasters, especially for dedicated spellcasters. But what I wonder is if I have, by providing that easy answer, I have robbed them of doing more interesting things, you know? Coming up with more interesting ways of trying to because that's the the beauty of of old school play, right? Is that you try and come up with these crazy ideas because you really can't, there's nothing there's not much on your character sheet you can do, but you try and come up with these cockamamie plans and plots and stuff like that to try and, you know, game the system as it were. And I wonder if by providing that easy access, I have robbed them of that. So I don't know. I mean, I'll, uh, I, I, am going to see how things go in, um, in darks and I'm happy to make changes on the fly, but for now I want to keep that, keep the cantrips out and I've got a different way am of, uh allowing um, spellcasters to, to do more stuff, you know, uh, to feel more magical in more scenes uh, without, you know, going into the either the cantrips that I came up with for Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea or going even the one extra further and doing the cantrips that they are in uh, Pathfinder 2 or in uh, D&D 5, which I feel are way overpowered. Uh, they, they... I get why they are there, but I feel like... I don't know. I, I feel like they make them a little... It doesn't capture the more grounded fantasy that I, I kind of want and I enjoy from the old school play. Um what else? Um so that's kind of where you know what what where I guess I, I'm thinking of in terms of holistic play. So in terms of the 2020 games, um th- here's a couple of things that I'm thinking. For one, I'm not enjoying PF2 as much as I was. Um now that I've kind of made that that kind of connection with the subs, the sort of sub mechanics, and just how much this, the idea of balance and whatever else is intruding, not only in our gameplay but in the way I'm thinking about the story in our game, uh, I'm not enjoying it as much. Um, so, it's not to say that the game isn't terrific. It's not to say that I, I will give up uh, running Pathfinder Two um, because I think that our In contrast to the Barrow Maze campaign, I think that the clearly structured story set pieces that we're doing in our uh, Galantry game is exactly how that game should be played. You know, it's exactly the way that the game is intended and designed to be played, and it's going to do a great job. We're not running into a lot of random encounters or stuff like that. Or if they do, they will make a story reason for why they would run into them. It is set piece stuff. It's story focused, which that game supports, you know. but for an ongoing game, just so where we can just let the players play and I can let, you know, I can not worry about the players getting advancement uh, or the players advancement that they're going to get from me giving them XP is going to somehow fuck up the math that underlies the game. Um, especially with a revolving cast like I have in my games. Um, I don't think Pathfinder 2 is going to fit the bill anymore. Um, I also, the more levels they get, the more we get away from easily, in, you know, intuitable uh, difficulty numbers the more we get into this abstracted range where like a 23 is a low difficulty whereas a 29 is a high difficulty and a 36 on a, a dice roll is a really really great result it's bonkers it's just it like yes i can look it up yes i can write down those numbers it just doesn't feel very good you know it doesn't feel good um and uh yeah uh at least it that doesn't feel good for that particular campaign i think again for the Galantry one that'll be different Um, And in terms of my experience with Hero, I thought that Champions, after running it for, you know, four times, I was like, this is, I can see real potential in here, particularly with character growth, where I keep level caps and I'm able to give out a little bit of XP with each session and each adventure, and then players can develop their characters, and, and there's clear rules for building whatever you want, you know, within the context of the sensibilities of the setting. That's exciting to me. But the combat takes a long time, and I don't know if... If, we, if I want to run a punch-em-up kind of game where there's going to be that stuff, is that too much game? You know, is that going to transform it where it's all about that? Because I can tell you that the old-school games, the combat runs super fast, super deadly, and I love it. I love the way combat feels in Ash. Even inconsequential encounters, they they breeze by so quickly that they don't feel like wasted time. And, and you can run massive, you know, uh, encounters in a relatively short period of time that feel appropriately epic they feel awesome players feel like real badasses when they're able to storm a castle and face a whole keep full of villains you know or adversaries when a whole horde in our in a recent our most recent session we had like 20 or 30 uh centipedes all drop down from a ceiling and i'll go after our heroes and it was this great you know scene of, of them crawling all over the place and the battle map was full of all these things and it was awesome but it only took about 20 minutes you know, like, I mean, I'm not even sure it took that long. And that's how those things should feel, you know, um, is that they should feel an, an organic part of the ongoing story, not a delineation of, you know, uh, an arbitrary delineation of, of time where it's like, no, this is a combat encounter versus a whatever encounter, you know, which Pathfinder 2 is because of the You know the opportunity to take 10 minutes and you know heal up effectively uh with uh, treat wounds uh to um you know recover focus points uh in that time it's not nearly as bad as what uh dnd uh fourth is by by any means it is and and it's not to slight the game for what it is the game is fantastic i adore pathfinder second edition for what it is but I don't know if it's the game I want to run as an ongoing game. And I'm interested to see by getting it to the table because from the, the regular listeners will know that's the only way I can trust how a game actually plays is getting it to the table. You know, how Path is, PAF, how is um, AD&D 2E going to do? with? I know there's going to be problems that I'll see, you know, will come up um, as I play it, but I'm really interested to see. We've gone almost a year now where characters have gained about five levels every um enough xp to gain five levels in uh, ash figuring that maybe because we play only every two weeks that more regular play will uh will allow for more advancement but also factoring in that you that you know you don't gain levels as fast in those old school games the, the higher you get up the more xp you need and role-playing sessions generally don't give you a lot of xp i am interested in seeing whether that would be you know what that kind of experience would be like let's say we get um one and a half even levels let's say we can get eight levels could you know gaining eight levels over the course of intense play over a a year would that be i mean i that sounds really interesting to me especially if it's driven by the, the players you know and the campaign that matt colville mentioned or in a previous thing his night below i picked that up from uh as a print-on-demand thing from drive-through rpg and i finally got a chance to read through uh part of it at least like the campaign structure and how the game starts off and boy is it that is precisely the kind of long-term play that i'm interested in um in an old school style of thing where there is a place that's going to unveil itself as you explore deeper and deeper but it has a little more story structure to it than, say, you know, the Barrow Maze. Uh, Gillespie's Mega Dungeons are fantastic, and they are great pick-up-and-play products, and they've got tons and tons of fun stuff in them. What they don't have is an obvious, ongoing plot by the enemies. They are reactive when you start going through them and, you know, you meet factions in uh or in the Forbidden Caverns of Archaea or in the Barrow Maze, but there isn't, there isn't some, you know, thing going on. There isn't stuff that's happening behind the scenes. Whereas in, in Night Below, there is. There's a plot going on and I won't spoil anything about it uh, in the event that you want to play or in the in the event you want to just read it and enjoy it yourself, but there's shit going on. You know, there is a, it is a sandbox and there is lots of opportunity for the players to have downtime and do other things and whatnot and to introduce other elements or other things. But there is a clear plot that is going on that, um, that's really fascinating and, and reactive in a way that, uh, Gillespie's dungeons aren't, you know, and, um, again, like that's, that is not, that's not what those Gillespie dungeons are designed to do. So it's not a fault on them. It is strictly an observation that that is something that I find, that is something that the Night Below does that the other that the Gillespie dungeons don't, and it's something that I think that I would really enjoy seeing it in in play. So, um, so that's where we are right now. Is that I'm just thinking that for the next year, I know that one. I guess other considerations. We, I've had a lot of people jo- uh, subscribe to the channel since I started running Pathfinder Two stuff. So I'm, I'm live to the fact that some maybe some folks are joining, but you know I've never been driven by sub numbers. <laughs> you know I don't I don't make a decision of what games I want to run based on what's going to be popular. I base my run my games based on what I think will be fun and what I think my players will enjoy. And it just so happens that fortunately some people think that it's cool to watch that stuff, or uh, at least that they enjoy watching this stuff, or maybe they hate watching it. I don't know. But <laughs> in any event, that's what's what's driven our sub base up until now. And um, that playing to see what happens. That you get in story games is something I have absolutely found in my old school games, in my old school uh play of um of Ash. Uh and I'm getting some of that in our Barrow Maze game, but I wonder if I could do it better. And I won't I don't want to go back to Scarlet Heroes. I don't I I enjoyed that game for what it was worth. I, I I just don't really want to run it again. I don't like it enough to to want to run it. I would much rather run a old school game like AD&D uh, second. Um, I, I've, you know, I've, I've since the summer is when I've really accumulated back my collection of this stuff. And I've got some ideas of how I might try it out, you know, to kind of take baby steps in here and see how the players respond. Um, things like uh, running some, uh, you know, one shots from older products, like there's a great Ravenloft product called book of Crips that has a bunch of very short adventures in it um i've recently reordered um copies of the from the ashes box set which i used to love as a kid and the patriots of ulek adventure which i ran as a kid and i absolutely adored because both those came out at the same time or roughly the same time and um I was never, you know, I I was never a Greyhawk expert or, you know, massive, you know, fan, but I loved the From the Ashes box set. And I, in having read it now, the Patriots of Ulek campaign or adventure is really, it's really uh, a, a product of its time with lots of like huge box techs and, and very railroady or whatnot, but there's a, an adventure in there that I enjoyed as a kid that I bet you I can run again. And it's not new, anywhere near as, as railroady as say the old Dragonlance adventures, right? Like those, those were crazy. Um, but I, I, I'd, I'd love to run that. That's on the way, you know, on its way coming to me. I'm running, uh, e, uh, uh, Dark Sun over the, um, uh over the break or for for new year's eve and then we'll see whether we carry on with that i've loved dark sun since i was a kid um and uh, getting a chance to go back to it with this original stuff rather than you know I, i've modified or come up with custom rules for dark sun for probably about five or six different games and i've actually written my own game specifically to set, play in the dark sun setting because i love it so much but boy is it cool coming back to ad and d and thinking about like you know what i don't need a lot of extra stuff and let's just see how this i don't need extra stuff on my character sheet to make my character feel unique to make my character feel like there are some ways that it mechanically differs from other characters um and to see ways my character advances you know i um i know that one of the things that a lot of players love about these old school or about the modern games is all the different decisions you get to make in mechanically building your character and i've mentioned that earlier in this episode how that's one of the things about starfinder that is so cool how awesome and how many great decisions you get to make about your your character and about how you build your character and i'm live to that and i appreciate that but i think when you don't when the time you spend in the game is not thinking about that and it's thinking about other things like what you want to actually do and where who you want to talk to and you know what agendas you want to pursue in the game when you take that stuff out of there out of the equation when there isn't that elaborate like getting my feats and getting my skill selections and and whatever out of the equation and you just have a game where there are decisions you get to make as you go up in levels you know and your proficiencies and your whatever when you take out the more fiddly bits of it and you have the players, if they're going to obsess about the game, they're going to think about the game, what they're thinking about is what they're actually doing in the fiction. I think that will make for a more immersive and rewarding experience. And I think that's the experience that I'm trying to give my players. That's what I want from these long-term campaigns is I want the talk to be about what you did and what you saw and what you, whatever, and that to be the primary focus, not the primary focus to be, and not to say that my players are doing this, but I mean, not to th- to obsess over you know how you're spending your skill points and and um, you know how you're spending your uh, uh, your feats and and whatever. So and maybe there's there needs to be, you know, uh, is there a happy medium there? I thought maybe with hero, there might be a happy medium. And weirdly, Starfinder, I feel is a much does a much better job of this um than what pathfinder 2 does starfinder i have not felt constrained by the um the math and i mean we're we're lower level in that campaign so maybe i just need to wait <laughs> um but um that game feels more it feels looser and less constrained by the level restrictions and the the number of restrictions than what pathfinder 2 does it feels like i'm falling less into a math trap you know in that than i do in uh, in pathfinder 2 so Anyway, so that's one thing. That's where my head is right now. Whether I mean that, the only way to change this and to really suss this out is going to be getting games to the table, and that's what I plan to do in this month. Is is trying to get some of uh, get some AD and D to the table, get get a real sense of how this game plays, and whether this satisfies some of the um, the issues that I've I've uh, been thinking about uh, from my from my current campaigns. And also, you know, makes me think of a really a really easy hashtag which is uh hashtag 2e 2020 you know that that will be a pretty fun way to think about uh, 2020 is spending our wednesdays and fridays playing nothing but second edition ad and d and exploring some of these old settings in the way that they were originally published you know and streaming those games because you know um i think that will be a lot of fun but i don't know that's where you know. That's where my head is right now. That's what I've been thinking about. And I guess let me try and um, finish this seg- this segment here or segment here, and I'll go into our outro and try and draw this together in an outro slash conclusion that provides some useful fodder uh, for you and how you're thinking about your games um, uh, beyond just you hearing me think over the uh, the issues or at least the things I'm I'm considering in respect to the games that I'm running right now. So let's see if we can uh, can't tie some of this mess together. So at the outset, I talked about how um, you know the the time you spend at the table or the amount of time you spend at the table can be dictated by the rules that you're choosing to use, and that is something that I'm I, I'm finding not only the the time that you're spending at the table dictates what your game, in in the sense of the game you're playing at the table, like the 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 overall experience you're getting from the rules, the players, the adventures they're getting into. Um, I mentioned how fourth edition that was combat. That's what that game was about because it took up the vast majority of your time. And what I'm finding, based on what you know, thinking about how how these games have been since I started uh, running these kind of pseudo uh, story games um, in the last little while uh, is that what we're spending a lot of our time is is in game mechanics. You know, the thing that we're spending is interacting with different game mechanics and there's nothing wrong with that if it supports your fiction and draws you into the fiction like I think it does with City of Mist and what it looks like it does with Cult. Cult seems like it's doing something similar, because Cult has a very similar kind of like part fate, part powered by the apocalypse style of play that City of Mist has. And I, yeah, I I just, when I think of what we do in our Ash game, and the reason I keep bringing up Ash in this if, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard me yap about Ash a lot, <laughs> but if you, if you have it, if you're new to the podcast, hi, welcome. Um, sorry for the really long episode this time. Um, and what Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is, is effectively a house-ruled version of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, both in terms of the setting and in terms of the rules. And the thing I found there is we spend almost no time. The, the only time we do really spend it where the the Get the you know the meat of the game comes in is in combat with because of the regimented uh, two phases and different segments of combat melee uh, missile movement and magic um, or magic and movement because of that regimented thing that's the that's the extent of the time that the rules really intrude on the fiction where we're what we're spending the time at the table doing otherwise is just having these crazy adventures you know Going through the woods. Going through the, the, the woods. There's no woods in, in Thule. <laughs> There's only miles in, of endless tundra. So it's, it's that stuff. Or it's interacting with people in the city. Or it's, you know, whatever. Like It, it just it feels like those games are more organic and it's more about the story. And it, even the story games that we've been playing, like City of Mist, uh, they don't feel like the rules are intruding quite as much. Um, I do find that the powered in by uh, sorry the um, forge in the dark games like Blades in the dark and that, I find that those are a little too much just talking about the rules and talking about the mechanics rather than just the emergent story that's supposed to come with those powered by the apocalypse games. But you know, I uh, I don't know. I loved my experience running City of Mist and I really want to run that more in the new year. I'm looking forward to running Cult in a uh, in an upcoming session, too, because that looks like it's going to be a very similar experience and a very fun, emergent play kind of uh, style of play. But for these other games, uh, and, and to be honest, Starfinder as well, too. Starfinder, the rules tend to get out of the way. There are ways that the rules does intrude, like with gear and with, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, with relative difficulties, I guess, for skill checks, but it feels much less obtrusive. It feels more like a the the kind of I don't know um, simulationist game that AD&D or that classic D&D or that you know basic D&D or that um, Ash are the that style of play where the t- what's experienced at the table is the play of the game as opposed to the discussion or the play of the story I guess as opposed to the other and that's the thing that yeah I don't know I mean I um, when I think of the the whole the whole of the time that we're spending at the table what do I really want what's my my favorite memories and um, and it's not to say with the players you know the, the players I've played with on all these games are phenomenal I've been very fortunate this year where everyone's been awesome but I think of the, this year and I think of previous years, Some of these games where the story is paramount, like our Traveler Pirates of Drinax campaign, um, like our, um, what do you call it, our Ash game, you know, and uh, I think of what we've been getting from those experiences and how it could be better you know, and and our, our uh, Cthulhu games, our, our, the sessions we run with Cthulhu, and not necessarily in the horror element and not necessarily using those game mechanics in the sense of we're not looking at specific powers. Combat feels like a dangerous, violent encounter in those games. Uh, and in Ash, it does as well, too. It doesn't feel like we're dropping into a game, you know, like a board game or a video game, which it does in some of these other games. So... Yeah, I don't know. Well, I know I do know. I mean, I know that what I prefer, you know, and I think of another sort of crunchy game like um, Star Trek, our experience with Star Trek Adventures. Star Trek Adventures is another game that is much, much closer to a story game than it is a traditional game. And even though it has, I've mentioned to, to, uh, I think on this podcast and to friends before how I preferred the encounter, like I, I would much rather use those rules to run a Star Wars game. I just don't want to put the work in to write them up, uh, than to use the actual Fantasy Flight Star Wars game. And that's why it is. It knows what it is. It knows that it's a story game, and just allows you to to run the the game that way. Both the the combat, the like the tactical encounters, uh, and the uh, the other elements, the other aspects of play. All that stuff is captured. In a story game, it doesn't try and be halfway between the two. So, yeah, I don't know. Looking forward. Things look promising for... Um, then I guess, you know, in, in conclusion, I don't want to make it sound like I'm slagging Pathfinder 2 altogether. Just like I said at the outset, it's a matter of using the right tool or the right thing for what is it is intended. And what I am intending to do and what I'm wanting to do, the emergent play, the incentive to just play more. Oh, that's one other thing I'll mention as well too. So one thing that I'm particularly um, intrigued with in AD&D 2nd is the weird, and AD&D 2nd is to be, if you're not familiar with it, if you really haven't played it in a long time or you've never played it, uh, how it differs from AD&D 1st primarily is how many optional rules it is. Uh, like looking at the the, ext- the life of the product um, line, um, it is a massive collection of optional rules. There's all sorts of optional things you can choose to do. So setting aside the fact that every role-playing game is obviously so you can choose to run that how you want. You know, the, the, your, there's no one's going to come in and take your book away if you don't run it the way it says in the book. That one really genuinely is a matter of, it's a toolbox. You can pick and, and choose what rules you want to use, what additions you want to make, stuff like that both in terms of character options, but also in terms of how you're running things at the table. And it's great, because it's a huge uh, variety of things you can choose from. Um, Gosh, and I just got lost (laughs) in my train of thought of gushing about, oh, so that's the difference between the two. So so you understand that's where AD&D 2nd differs from AD&D 1st, is that AD&D 2nd is a much more modular game, which is probably why it also supported so many different settings, and widely different settings, from the You know, swords and sorcery, blasted sands of Dark Sun to the gothic horror of Ravenloft to the, you know, um, the kind of romantic, uh, you know, uh, dark fantasy that is Dragonlance uh, to uh, uh, Forgotten Realms, you know. Um, And um, I have no earthly idea what my point was. I'm so sorry uh, for those who are listening. I I just. what was my point here? Um, that we guess, I guess my point, and unless it comes back to me, I'm, um, what I will uh, maybe conclude with is just that, um, well, you know what I can do? Hold on. I can actually pause this and listen to what I said. Let's see what I was saying. You know, uh, dark. Okay, so I have gone back and listened to it again, but I've had some issues with, uh, Anchor. Uh, so I'm not sure if it screwed up this audio. If if it did, I, I apologize. I think what I, I was trying to get at before I got lost in in what um, in my rants about not rants but like my aside about uh, AD and D second is that I, it's not to say that Pathfinder Second is a bad game. It is the tool you use. You know, it's how you choose to do what you want to do. It's the tool that is designed to do a specific style of play, which is exactly the kind of play that I want in my gallantry campaign however i think for the type of holistic experience that i want where i can regularly give advancement and by advancement i mean xp it doesn't mean gaining levels it means that you're seeing measurable progress towards another thing where i don't have to then also think about the consequence of how that's going to change the game we're playing you know that is something that i i deeply dislike about most level-based games um, I get around that in Starfinder by using um, a milestone advancement. We've been playing for a year, and the characters are only fourth level. You know, not not every group will be would be on board with that <laughs> that pace of advancement. My players, fortunately, are they are awesome. Um, and for a game like Ash, I can just it is level based. Yes, but I don't have to make any special considerations because of that. The differentiations between the levels, especially as uh, players get up are not as marked as, uh, at least in those lower levels, as they are in uh, uh, Pathfinder 2 or D&D or Starfinder. So the fact that characters aren't all the same level does not matter. The fact that characters are playing starting at first level where other characters are higher level does not matter. They still can have some participation in the game. I don't need to think about that shit. I can just run the game, model the world how I want to model the world... And, yeah, and then you also factor in other elements that are common of a lot of the games that I love. I love how easy it is to run those old school games. I love how easy it is to house rule those uh, old school games. I love how easy it is to, um, how many, uh, like, well, a couple different things. For one, I love how many great resources there are. I love how many, how immersive those games are uh, because you're, you know, you're really visualizing what your character can do, you know, more so than, what mechanical things your character can roll what you can roll and and you know what sub game mechanic you can engage in and i don't want it to sound you know my 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 point here is not that one style of play is better than any other and i'm not trying to say that the um you know those types of games where because i have had a shit ton of fun with pathfinder 2 um it's just looking forward for an ongoing campaign for something that is going to be not a start, you know, starts at one point, end at a certain point, level based kind of thing, not a story structured kind of thing. That kind of emergent play that we've had with uh, some of these other games, I think I want to do that with an old school game more so than I do um, one of these more modern games, uh, because I, the overall experience I get from that and what I the thing I want to offer for my players. And, and by virtue of my viewers as well, too, is that is that style of play. Now, whether or not AD&D 2nd is going to provide that, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. But that's what I'm thinking right now. And the lesson I think that you can draw from this is not, you know, hey, go and play AD&D 2nd Edition. It's look at the games you're running and what the actual cohesive, like the overall experience of them at the table is. What is it... You know, is that, the, is that experience what you're satisfied with? Because there's a lot of players who that's what they want, right? Like, they, uh, the Pathfinder First is an extraordinarily crunchy system with a crazy amount of, of, of uh, options and complexity in the um, character creation stuff. But what an insanely popular game. And I get that, like, it has fallen out of fashion uh, right now because uh, AD&D, uh, or AD&D 5th, Fifth, Fifth is a much more popular game. Uh, and a much more accessible game. And, you know, there's great resources for it as well, too. Uh, And there is a sense of community with people playing through the same types of adventures at the same time, right? With a slow release of of their mega adventures. But I don't know. I mean, like, I I think what you can draw from this is to analyze what the different components of your game are in the sense that, you know, um, do you want a really in-depth combat game do you want you know and if so is that what you want your experience to be at the table do you want these awesome crunchy tactical combat encounters where they're you know they're lasting for hours and because it can be lots and lots of fun but for me that's not what I want right now do you want um you know really co- cohesive concrete rules for all aspects of play not only because you know um then it, it's well, I mean, the reason for that, and the reason there's an advantage with that is it makes it clear to the players, oh, here's how I mechanically engage with these other elements of the section. Do you want that or do you want something that's more loosey-goosey? Something that's gonna require the players to kind of to bring more to the table, to, to add more to the table by them interrogating the fiction. Well, then you gotta figure out which one you want. Because I mean, it's gonna be different from each group and for each type of campaign. You know, uh, so yeah. Do you what kind of advancement do you want? You know, do you want to be doling out stuff um, for each you know session the way you would in say like you know uh, Iron Kingdoms or Savage Worlds or uh, like what we do in our old school games? Do you want stuff that's going to incentivize certain kinds of gameplay? One really cool element of uh, Blades in the Dark is that the players, by virtue of whatever kind of playbook, whatever type of character they're playing. They know what they need to do in the session to get specific XP. Same thing with uh, Margaret Weiss Productions' um, Marvel uh, Heroic Roleplaying. That did a really cool thing where, like, it would set in your character sheet, if you do this, you get XXP, you know? And um, AD&D Second has a neat idea of that for different races and classes, for specific XP rewards that you get when you do certain things or when you achieve certain things. I love that. So, um, Yeah. Do you want that or do you not want to worry about that stuff? Do you want to just, you know, do milestone leveling, you know, for what is right for my Starfinder game is not going to be right. Is not what I'm thinking of for these longer ongoing, you know, stories. So that's a consideration that you will want to do for yourself too, for ongoing campaigns. So anyway, that is where we are. And that brings us to the end of this very, very long episode. I really hope that this last Segment was not corrupted because uh, when I listened to it back, it got a little squirrely. But that's how uh, Anchor can be when you leave it open too long. <laughs> so, um, as always, if you have any comments, questions, uh, or concerns regarding the session, please don't hesitate to. You can shoot me a um, voice message on Anchor. You can reach me uh, by email at dungeonmusings at gmail You can find me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at dungeon musings, and. You can go to the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel and uh, you can find a link on any of our recent videos to the Dungeon Musings Discord server too. You can join us and join the conversation of uh, folks talking about these games that I'm talking about now. The games I've been running or, you know, find a group for yourself because there's uh, always a find a group thing. And we just had a... uh, a new, uh, play by post, um, channel set up as well too. So someone's running a, uh, my buddy Arlen Walker, not just somebody, uh, is running a play by post, uh, mutants and masterminds game there now too. So there's, we're ever expanding on that and it's, uh, it does my heart proud to see tons of cool gamers getting together and <clears throat> talking about uh, games and making plans to play games and so forth. So anyway, um, and last, I guess I'll just say again, thank you uh, so much to everybody who has reached out uh, and expressed uh, condolences and whatnot for the loss of my my dear Emmy Lou. Um, it's been a really rough week. I'm exhausted. Um, but uh, part of the way of, uh, you know, making this a manageable uh, week was how wonderful uh, everyone in the community has been. So uh, a massive thank you uh, to everybody. I'll be wrapping up the year with a, a kind of a... Assessment or kind of state of the union, both on the YouTube channel and I'll do this on the podcast as well too. But uh, that is something I can't say right now. Is just how appreciative I am of the folks who engage with the stuff that I throw out there, and um, especially people who come uh, get back to me as well too on how it responds. Uh, I love the idea of this being more of a dialogue than just me talking to myself with my phone. Sometimes with my dog. Sometimes just pacing by myself. But uh, anyway, thank you, everybody. And until next time, happy gaming.